Turn to Acts chapter 9 in your Bible. Last Sunday we we opened up chapter 9 and looked at, at Saul's conversion and the dramatic way that the Lord saved him. It It wasn't a spiritual experience alone that left him feeling good for a while but eventually faded and he just went back to life as, as normal. Saul's entire existence was changed, turned upside down. He was given almost literally new eyes to see, a new purpose in life. We, we see from Saul's conversion, he didn't, he didn't make a deal with God. He didn't negotiate anything. He didn't tack faith in Christ onto what he, he was already doing in his life. It wasn't anything like that at all. Everything about him was transformed. Transformed. You can think of uh, a caterpillar into a cocoon, into a butterfly. We're talking almost an entirely different creature here. In fact, Scripture describes us that way. And his entire testimony reminds us that the response of those who have been transformed by the grace of God that what identifies them is submission to the Savior. When Jesus said, Lord, or when Saul said to Jesus, Lord, what do you want me to do? It wasn't, it wasn't like just, you know, let me do something along with what I'm doing. He's saying, Lord, I'm giving myself to you for you to tell me what to do from now on, not any part of myself. And so this just reminds us of these questions as we get going this morning that we ought to be asking, as we consider Saul's conversion is, have, have I been transformed by the Savior like this? Now, I, I mentioned this last week. All of our testimonies don't look as dramatic as, as Saul's, for sure. And yet, God transforms us through faith in Christ. Have I been saved that way? Have I been transformed by His love? And am I now submitting to the one who has transformed me? So as those questions are kind of knocking around in our head, let's read the rest of, uh, or some of the text of chapter 9, specifically verses 19 through 31. I'm reading from the ESV, starting in verse 19. This is right after he was baptized. In fact, the beginning of that sentence says, Then he rose and was baptized, in verse 19, and taking food, he was strengthened, for some days he was with his disciples, the disciples in Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And when many days had passed, the, blue, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. Verse 26. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him 
and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Would you pray with me? Wow. God, that you would do a work in the church as a result of the conversion of this wretched man. This persecutor and murderer of Christians now becomes one of the most bold and particular proclaimers of the Jesus whom he was persecuting. If, if we don't hear anything else this morning, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of the truth that no matter how bad we think we are, we are not beyond your salvation. No matter how far we think we may have traveled away, we may have slipped away from you, it's not so far that you can't rescue us back. And not only that, Lord, but even in those moments and in those situations, you then, you don't just save us, you give us something to do, you give us new purpose. And so I pray as we, as we work through these verses this morning, that you would remind believers listening today of the purpose that you have given them. Thank you for this text and your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I just want to want to emphasize and point out right off the bat how different Saul's life now was. You can see right here at the beginning of the text uh, in verse 20, immediately. So he's blinded. He's given his sight back after three days. He takes food after fasting. He's incorporated somewhat into the body of Christ and immediately... After his baptism, he is preaching and proclaiming the name of Jesus. He went to Damascus to drag saints off to prison. And now he's eating with them. He's their brother in Christ, a fellow disciple right alongside of them. So he's strengthened by food in verse 19. And then he's strengthened by the fellowship of the body of Christ as well. And verse 19 describes this short period of time that Saul stayed with the disciples in Damascus. And here's really where we see in verses 20 through 22 the evidence of the new life that Saul had been given in Christ. He's proclaiming in the synagogues. He's preaching in the synagogues. And what is he proclaiming? It's a simple message, and it caused all kinds of problems, didn't it? But what is he saying He's saying he is the son of God. That's the message. You remember when Jonah was given the message to preach, he went and said, hey, Nineveh is going to be overthrown in 40 days. Simple message that caused repentance among the people. 
what Paul is saying, what Saul is saying, maybe even more simple than that, at least in its, in its wording, he says, Jesus is the Son of God. That's what he's proclaiming. After just a few days of being converted, he's convinced of the deity of Jesus, and he's convinced of the saving power of Christ. And he's proclaiming it. He's not keeping it to himself. He's saying it to everybody. Why, why wouldn't he? Why shouldn't he be saying that to everyone? R.C. Sproul said, just minutes before his conversion, all that Saul could think of was what he could do to Jesus' name, to Christ. But immediately after, all he could think of is what he could do for Christ. It had switched. It had flipped. There was something Amazing that it happened. He'd been transformed. The impact of the gospel of Jesus on the heart and mind and lips of Saul was seen immediately. Now it's true that Jesus saved Paul, Saul in body, heart, and soul. But we just a, a fine detail to maybe iron out this morning is the fact that Jesus actually didn't change Saul's name. Many times we, we might just say that, and there's some truth to the fact that his name is certainly changed. But Jesus doesn't rename him Paul. Jesus, if you remember, uses the Hebrew version when Saul is knocked down on the road to Damascus. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus uses the Hebrew version of that name, of Saul. And the Holy Spirit uses this term for the man. In Acts 13, right before he goes on his first missionary journey, the Holy Spirit still calls him Saul. In fact, even after his conversion, 11 more times he's referred to that way in the book of Acts. So I don't, I don't think we can say that Jesus changed his name from Saul to Paul. He isn't actually called Paul at all until Acts 13 verse 9, where Luke uses a different name for him and says, but Saul who was also called Paul. And that's the first time we see him referred that way. And then he's called Paul most of the time after that. So is this that significant? Is this that important? Maybe not, but I think that it's what's likely going on here is the fact that he was just known by both of those names. Saul, Paul, being Jewish by birth, his parents... And the whole Jewish community probably would have called him by his he- the Hebrew version of that name, Saul. So when he's in Jerusalem, or on his way to Jerusalem, I should say, when he's amongst the believers in Damascus, amongst Jews, they're likely using his Jewish name, Saul. But he's also a Roman citizen. Verse uh, Romans 11, verse 13, talks about this. It says that he's now been commissioned by the Savior... It says there to be the apostle to the Gentiles. So it makes sense in Acts 13 as he's getting ready to be sent out on his first missionary journey to the Gentiles that Luke now begins this shift of calling him by the more Greek version of the name Paul. Paul talks about being all things to all men and maybe just the, uh, a difference in what he's being called aids in that as he goes to preach to the Gentiles. Now, whatever people around him called him, whether it was Saul or Paul, they were all amazed at what he had to say. And that's really the emphasis of this text at this point, is they knew this man, whatever he went by, 
he was the guy who was persecuting Christians, dragging them out of their homes, throwing them in prison, and holding the coats of people stoning them. This was, this was Saul. That was his reputation that preceded him. So as we go forward, I may refer to him as Saul or Paul. You know who we're talking about. Look at verses 20 and 21. So he's taking this message and where is he preaching it first? The synagogues, right? This would have been where the Jews went. So he's got a Jewish audience right here at this point. And he's preaching this message that Jesus is the Son of God and he's preaching it in the synagogues. Now think about this with me. Had he ever been in the synagogues before? Absolutely. He, he probably been, he calls himself a Pharisee of Pharisees later on in his, in his letters. He was probably in the synagogues. He was probably in the church building more than most other people. So what was different this time? He's not just there to go through the motions of praying, of studying the scrolls, of learning all the laws. What was different this time? The message that he is proclaiming is vastly different. Now he goes in to the synagogues and he's not agreeing with everything that the priests say and the Jewish audience says. Now he's really contradicting them and he says, Jesus is the Christ, son of God. Matthew 26, Jesus himself is asked in his trial if he is the Christ, if he is the son of God. And Jesus affirms it and he says, you said that it was so. Guys, that is the message that Jesus was killed for. Because they considered it blasphemy that he would consider himself the son of God or God. That's why. And so now Saul comes into the synagogues after this amazing conversion. And that's the message that he preached. Does, does, I, I'm sure he didn't think he would get a better reception than Jesus did at his death. But he goes in and he starts preaching this message that Jesus is the Son of God. And if you think back to the, the sermons that we've heard in Acts already, specifically from Philip and Peter, they've been saying the same thing, right? Peter is, is consistently in his messages pointing the finger at the Jewish audience and saying, you killed the Son of God, the author of life you put on a cross. So Paul, Saul's message in the synagogue is no different than what these Christians as a part of the way have already been preaching. Philip says the same thing when he exposits Isaiah. And so what uh, what Paul is, is saying here in the synagogues is just as much blasphemy in the ears of these Jewish audience than Jesus was saying that he was the son of God. And it had an impact. What, what Paul's preaching did was it had an impact, didn't it? You can look at verse 21. All who heard him were amazed and said, isn't this the guy who caused all that trouble, caused havoc in Jerusalem for all the people who called upon this name? So the name that, that Paul, Saul, is now preaching as the only way, they're saying, well, isn't this the same name that he was killing people for loving and preaching? They recognize the, the change in Saul's life. What an exciting time it must have been to be a Christian then. To see 
the work of God in a man like Saul, the main persecutor of Christians. Now he's in the synagogues preaching the risen Christ, the very message that he was persecuting. What an exciting time it must have been. I think, I think of that same thing today, brothers and sisters. I don't know how you feel about what's going on in the world, but it's an exciting time to be a Christian, isn't it? To see all of the things that God is doing in and around the world for the kingdom, for the glory of the name of Jesus. It doesn't come without challenges, but man, what an exciting time it is. And I, I want us to think through just for a moment, put yourself in the Jew's seat in the synagogue. You hear Saul, the great defender of the traditional Jewish religion, he's coming to, to Damascus, to our temple, to our synagogue. He's coming now and he's, he's going he's gonna to speak. There's a Bible, Bible commentator, John Phillips, he paints a vivid picture of what this might have been like. I just want to read it. So put yourself in that, in that space and think of it this way. John Phillips says, We can well picture what happened. News of Saul's arrival would cause an immediate stir. Here was the grand inquisitor of the Sanhedrin, armed with documents demanding full cooperation of the faithful in the task entrusted to him of rooting out heresy. The ruler of the synagogue would surely defer to him. It was not every day an accredited agent of the Sanhedrin crossed the threshold of his synagogue. Saul would be given the chief seat. Every eye would be on him. Some would gaze at him with approval. Others with apprehension. In due course, Saul would ask for the scriptures to be handed to him. He would stand and read a passage, hand back the scroll, and turn and face the congregation. A hush would fall. Now it was coming. A condemnation of the new sect referred to as the way. Reasons for regarding it as heresy, fierce criticism of this Jesus of Nazareth and of the common fisher folk who headed the apostasy in Jerusalem. News of measures actively underway in the capital to put an end to this cult and a demand that those knowing of any Christians in Damascus put their knowledge in Saul's hands on pain of sharing the fate of these Christians. This is what they expected, but instead, instead, Paul preached Christ to the people, proving that Jesus is the Son of God. Their astonishment must have known no bounds. Everyone who heard him was amazed, was perplexed. Here's a fun word, was flabbergasted. They did not understand what was going on. That word amazed also means beside themselves. The devout Jews began to severely dislike Saul. Look at verse 23. We know that that's the case because they start plotting to kill him. The Jews, the faithful Jews there as they considered themselves, they wanted to kill him. They didn't want anything to do with him. But the converted Christians also had trusting him, also had trouble trusting him because of his past. Look at verse 26. Verse 26 says that they, that he attempted in, in a little while to go and to join the disciples, but they were afraid of him and didn't believe that he was a true disciple. 
Saul just didn't fit in anywhere at the moment, it would seem. Some people have called him a social leper at this point. He just didn't fit in anywhere. He, he truly gave up everything to follow Jesus. But look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Saul was proclaiming in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God and he confounded the Jews in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. So he amazed them. They were beside themselves. And that word confounded means to throw into disorder, to stir into an uproar. And what was it that Paul was saying and doing that caused all of this trouble? Again, he was saying and proving that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God. You realize what this is, right? Don't let this be lost on us. The same Spirit that gave boldness to Peter and Philip and Stephen as they preached in situations where they were going to be thrown in jail, given 40 lashes, be stoned to death. The same Spirit that was given to these men is now given to the one who persecuted them. Like him or hate him, Saul couldn't be ignored. You couldn't not do anything about it. And I think, isn't that the way it is with the gospel message too? You can like it or you can hate it, but you can't ignore it. This brings us to our first blank on your notes this morning. And it's this, the truth about Jesus demands a response. Who Jesus is, Saul is saying he's the son of God. The whole Old Testament looks forward to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah. The whole New Testament proves it. The testimony of yourself as a born-again believer proves it. This truth about who Jesus really is demands a response. You can't just sit and hear it and then go out and live like nothing happened. It demands a response. Something changes when you hear it. You're now accountable for hearing this truth about who Jesus is. You either believe it or you reject it. And if you choose to think that you're ignoring it, that's a rejection. Look at verse 23. 23 reveals that some of the Jews in Damascus, they they rejected Paul's message of Jesus as Messiah. It says, "When, when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. These who once were brothers and sisters who looked up to, to Saul as the one who was the stalwart, the one who defended their beliefs, even to the point of doing what's hard and necessary, so they thought, and killing Christians. Now he's the one they want to kill. There were some who did not believe in what he said. Now, before we talk more about this plot to kill him and how Saul escapes by going down the basket elevator out of the wall. Let's work on the timeline a bit because I think it's helpful. Luke just says, when many days had passed. It's pretty vague, right? There's not a definitive timeline. So uh, we look to some of Paul's other writings to help with this. So flip in your Bible to Galatians chapter 1. This is a helpful text. It's not the only one we can look to, but it may be the most clear. Galatians chapter 1. 
starting in verse 13. Paul says, For for you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, Peter, and remained with him 15 days. So that helps us understand the timeline in Acts a little bit, because according to this text, there's about a three-year time span that Luke simply just describes here as many days. We don't know. You can look at timelines in your study Bibles, and they've got approximate dates. And that's probably good enough for our intents and purposes. And yet, we can put some of the different pieces of the puzzle together. If you look back at Acts 9, verse 17, or rather, Galatians 1, 17, he, Paul says that he didn't seek training from Christians in Jerusalem. He says that he went to Arabia, and then he returned to Damascus, and then verse 18 says, then he went to Jerusalem. So we also know from Acts nine nineteen that he spent some days with the disciples in Damascus there. So long story short, most Bible commentators have come to understand that the three years that Saul refer, Paul refers to in Galatians chapter 1, verse 18, is likely from the point of his conversion, probably not from his return to Damascus. Is, is that a big deal to understand this perfectly? Probably not, maybe not, but it's helpful in determining not only the dates in the book of Acts, but in also some of his other writings to the churches. Any way you look at it, we know a couple of things for sure from Acts 9, Galatians 1, and it's this, that God the Father was pleased to reveal his son to Paul in order that Paul might then go and preach among the Gentiles. That's the key. That's really what Paul is getting at in Galatians 1, 15 and 16 when he talks about this. During those three years, we know that Saul spent some time in Arabia, surely being encouraged and increasing in strength spiritually. (coughs) After he'd returned to Damascus after some amount of time, and he was there for some other period of time, we're not sure how long, at some point there, he was such a threat to, peop- to the people in the synagogues by his spirit-filled preaching that he became a wanted man. They wanted to kill him, right? So that's where verse 23 picks back up. We're likely talking several years have passed when he talks about many days. And it picks back up there after many days with some of the, J- the Jews <clears throat> plotting to kill him. And one of the ways they do this is they install guards day and night by the city gates. You guys understand, they did more than just hang up a wanted poster. They installed guards to, to seek this guy out. He's not leaving the city without getting caught. 
They hate him that much. And they don't just want to catch him and reprimand him. They want to catch him and kill him. Instant death. You find Saul, instant death. That's what's going on. That's the threat against his life. No trial, no imprisonment, off with his head kind of thing. William Barclay says, No one persecutes a man who is ineffective and who obviously does not matter. To suffer persecution is to be paid the greatest of compliments because it is the certain proof that men think we really matter. Saul mattered. God says he mattered. He was God's chosen instrument. Remember, he told Ananias that. Saul is my chosen instrument. In Galatians 1.18, Paul recounts this, this thing, and he says that God revealed his son to him so that he might go and preach this message to the Gentiles. So Saul was still a very dangerous man, but now it was to a completely different group of people, isn't it? He used to be a dangerous man to Christians. Now he's a dangerous man to the, to the Jews, to the synagogue people. It's funny how that works sometimes. Verses 24 and 25 tell us, though, that, that Saul heard of this plot to kill him. And so his friends got a big old basket and they put him in it and they lowered it from a, a window in the wall at night for him to be free. Remember what Jesus says to Ananias right after he says in chapter nine, verse 16, you can glance back there. He just told Ananias, he's my chosen instrument. And then he says this, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So he's saved on the road to Damascus. He goes to Arabia. He comes home to preach and then he's driven out of Damascus, his home, this, this town by threats of death. Saul's suffering started in the very first place he ever started preaching the gospel. Right away. As soon as he starts preaching the truth of Jesus, that suffering that Jesus said would come starts. That's his ministry, brothers and sisters. The difficulty doesn't stop there. Look at verse 26. This is that social leper idea. He's not welcome in the synagogues with the traditionally Jewish people anymore who rejected Jesus Christ as Messiah. And now verse 26 says that even those born-again Christians don't really trust him either. They didn't receive him. Surely they thought, this guy's a wolf in sheep's clothing, isn't he? This is just a new tactic to get inside the church and destroy us that way. And so they kept him at arm's length. And if I'm honest, I would say I probably would have done the same thing. But there's a hero here that we can't overlook. His name is Barnabas. What a great name. You guys know what Barnabas means? His name means son of encouragement. That's an important aspect to this. Barnabas' name. Because it says, the text says that Barnabas grabbed hold of Saul... I don't know physically maybe, but he grabbed hold of Saul and he took him to the apostles and he said, guys, listen to his testimony. Here's all that God has done in his life on the road to Damascus on his bold preaching in the name of Jesus. Verse 27 says that. I love this idea that Barnabas, the son of encouragement, this guy who was great at this, he grabs hold of the one who they were keeping at arm's length. 
And he brings him in. He wraps him in. Now, Ananias had welcomed him. Remember, he called him Brother Saul. But here, Barnabas takes Saul's care upon himself. Uh, to put it in our terms, Barnabas vouched for Saul. He said, listen to this guy. I vouch for him. And so in this way, Barnabas lived up to his name, didn't he? Son of encouragement. That Oh, that we might be encouragers like Barnabas. And we can preach a whole sermon about Barnabas here and what God has done through him in incorporating this once wretched and sinful man into the body of Christ and how we ought to do the same. May we be encouragers like this. May we find those who maybe Christianity is rejecting, maybe Christians close to us are keeping at arm's length and say, no, his testimony, their testimony is legitimate. Welcome them. That we might take responsibility for new Christians and stand up for them. Ask the question, who might the Lord be sending us to that we might stand up for, that we might take responsibility for and vouch for? Let the Lord lead us in that. Look at verse 28. It says that Saul went in and out among them. This is just another way of describing a person's everyday activities of life. He would go into the temple. He would go into where they were uh, meeting these Christians. And he would go about what he was doing. Um, quite literally, Barnabas and probably now the other apostles are opening doors literally and figuratively, for, for Saul to come in and preach the gospel, that Jesus is the Son of God. And it says that he preached boldly in the name of Jesus. He preached to and disputed, disputed with the Hellenists, Luke says here. Disputed with also just means reasoned with. This idea of, of arguing, but not just screaming like we think of arguing. That's, that's how our culture talks about arguing. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about more of a civil argument, of a discussion, but based on logic and reasoning. And if you, if you know Paul's letters to the churches, he's fantastic at this. Praise God for his letters to the churches, for his theological treatises like the book of Romans, where logic just really drives home the point. And so he's reasoning with these people. What's he saying? Because they they have the same response of the Jews in Damascus. They want to kill him. They want to kill him. They were seeking to kill him. What was he saying? It was the same thing. He's not preaching a different gospel message. He's preaching boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Messiah. So this message has now enraged both Jews in Damascus and Jews in Jerusalem so much so that they all want him dead. They, everybody wants to kill Saul at this point. And I guess their theory is if you can't beat him, kill him. And honestly, if you look back at Acts, it's worked with Stephen, right? Or so they thought. They couldn't shut him up. Remember, they're stopping up their ears because they don't want to hear what Stephen has to say. They kill him and they think, whew, we dodged that bullet. And what they didn't realize or understand is that what they'd done to Stephen was actually light the spark that set the whole church 
on fire. There's so many points in the story where you can look at and you can say, man, that's the point where everything started to change. That's the, that's the linchpin. That's the crux of all of this. And, and we'd be right on a lot of these different things. We could say, man, that's, that's where everything changed right there. You could look at Jesus' ascension, Pentecost, the giving of the Spirit. You could look at some of the healings and the miracles performed, Stephen's death, Saul's conversion. All of these things were ordained by a good and sovereign Lord for his purpose of sending Christians out from Jerusalem, out from the comfort of the four walls of the synagogue and of the temple, and into a world of Gentiles that needed to hear the message of Jesus. Not the message that the Pharisees were spreading, of law only, but the message of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. Now there's divine irony here in the fact that the ones who threw the stones at Stephen are now the ones who want to throw the stones at Saul, the one who held their coats the first time. Only a fantastic transformation of a life could cause something like this to happen. Later in Acts 22, Paul is retelling his conversion story to the Jews after his arrest. He says this, He says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and I was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So Jesus came to Saul, to Paul in a trance and told him to get out of Jerusalem because they're not going to accept his testimony. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. He saw saying, they know my testimony. They know who I was. And Jesus answers and he says, and he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That's the point. That's what God is trying to help Paul understand through all of this. And we'll see in the next several chapters, God's got to really teach all of the apostles this. And Peter was just as hard-headed as ever. But he goes, he escapes to Jerusalem through a hole in the wall of Damascus. And now he's going to escape from Damascus and go back to Tarsus. And just geographically, likely that was on a boat to get there. And so while estimates vary somewhat based on the dates mentioned in other New Testament letters and who was ruling when, most commentators think that Saul stayed in Tarsus for the next maybe eight to ten years. And there's not a whole lot written about Paul during that time. There's, there's really not anything written by Paul during that time. It's really not until Acts eleven twenty five. When Barnabas goes to Tarsus to recruit Paul for missions work, that we hear about Paul again. The the scene shifts here. You can see in the next few verses after 31, the scene shifts back to Peter. At least for a time. 
I think Chuck Swindoll helps us of this time. He says, God had marked this brilliant Pharisee for ministry among the Gentiles, but the church was not yet ready for him. While God had prepared Saul of Tarsus to become Paul the Apostle, he also prepared the Jewish church in Jerusalem to welcome Gentiles as brothers and sisters. And we see the rumblings of this starting in verse 31. The church had peace, was being built up. It says, And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This, this is beautiful. We have much to learn. As Jason was saying to the kids earlier, this chapter is chock full of important stuff for believers. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the church multiplied. Luke, as I said, then shifts to Peter's ministry and we don't hear about Paul for a while. But think about the state of the church here. Saul was not persecuting them anymore, but Saul wasn't the only one who was doing that sort of thing. And the the Jewish uh, regiment there was driving Saul out. He's no longer fit for persecuting Christians because he is one now, so they're going to find other people to do it. So the church is facing lots of external difficulties, and yet, at the same time, look at what they had. They had peace. They were being built up. How is this possible? I think the premise of this, the principle of this, would apply to you and me as believers as well. When our, our lives feel like out of control, chaos, persecution, suffering, how on earth could we have peace and, and continue being built up? What does it say? How is this possible? The text says, Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This isn't a recipe. This isn't a formula that we try to recreate and check off. But brothers and sisters, so many are searching for peace in this life, but trying to get it in all the wrong ways. So many will tell you to follow your heart, to look within yourself, to find this kind of peace. But when everyone does that, what do we get? We don't get peace. We get chaos. Because if history, certainly biblical history has shown us, is that when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, whew, we're in a bad sort. So we can't look within ourselves. If we desire peace, church, if we desire building up, the way is through the fear of the Lord and walking in the Spirit and in His comfort. The way of peace and being built up is not looking within yourself. Don't fall for the lie. It is looking outside of yourself to Christ, to Jesus, our Savior. It's looking outside of yourself to the cross. It's looking outside of yourself to the empty tomb, to the one who doesn't just modify your behavior or tack eternal life onto what you're normally doing. But man, it's the one who knocks you to the ground and gives you new eyes and a new purpose. That's the one we look to for peace, for comfort, for building up. And why, why do you think God has done this? 
This is a good, an important question to ask too as a church. Why do you think that the Lord, in His grace, was building up the church and giving her peace? I think it's simple, and it has to do with the, the quarter that Jason showed the kids this morning. Because God has given us a purpose to do, a job to do. Now, it's not performance-based. That's not what we're getting at here. God doesn't hate us or discount us if we're not fulfilling what he calls us to. But if the Lord has given us in this church peace and being built up, and I, I believe that he has over the last several years, he has been building this church up, giving us peace. If that's the case, it's not for us to sit here and say, wow, isn't this so great? Now, we ought to acknowledge it and thank God for it, but that's not all we ought to do with it. God has given us these things because he's also given us a job to do, individually and as a church. I'll say what Jason said, and I said it last week too. God didn't just save Saul from something. He saved him to something. Remember, he saved him, he redeemed him so that he would go and be a, a, an apostle and a, a preacher to the Gentile people. But, but Saul wasn't going to be able to go and to do that if he wasn't walking in the fear of the Lord and being built up. And so for those 10-ish years or so, that there's not a whole lot written about Paul here, I believe that's what was going on. He's being built up. In the Lord, he's walking in the peace of the Spirit, not because of what he has done or doing, but because he's looking outside of himself to the Savior who called him. And in reality, we won't be able to do what God calls us to either properly if we're not walking in the Spirit and in his peace. Because that's where our strength, the boldly witness, comes from, brothers and sisters. It comes from the peace of the Holy Spirit. That's where our perseverance in trials comes from. That's where our comfort in affliction comes from. Not from within ourselves, but from the Spirit and from the presence of Christ. And so we want to apply this as Christians. That's also the very same thing that people around us need to hear. They don't know it, but that's what they need to hear. They need to hear that you can have peace, not because the news tells you certain things are happening or not happening, but because Christ is king and he wants you in his kingdom. That's what they need for us to be telling them. Will you be one who tells them that? Will you be one who welcomes them in like Barnabas? Will you be one who speaks and lives as if Jesus really saved your life from destruction. Brothers and sisters, if God has saved you by grace through faith in his son Jesus Christ, make it a priority to participate in what he's doing. Make it a priority to participate in what he's doing. What God did in Saul on the road to Damascus was the start of something big. It was one of those dominoes in God's sovereignty that fell in just his purpose and timing, and it was big. It would send ripples down through the ancient world, brothers and sisters, that we still feel today. And what God has done and in doing in your life 
also is the start of something big. It too can have ripples that go far beyond what we could ever imagine. Your parents may not have done things well, but with you and your kids, you have an opportunity to set things right. And by the Spirit of God, for His glory, what God is doing in your life can be the start of something big. Have you surrendered like Paul on the road? Have you surrendered to Jesus? Have you said, I hear and see what you're doing, Lord. Tell me what to do. Tell me where to go. Tell me who to talk to. Tell me what to do with my time, with my money. I surrender to you. And will you make participating in the work of the kingdom a priority in your life and in your family? The ripples of these things, brothers and sisters, will go on far beyond what we could ever imagine. And so, as we think of of Barnabas this morning, I pray that we would be like him in encouraging one another. Take a moment this week, I would challenge you, and encourage a brother or sister. Maybe it's one that you haven't seen here for a while. Maybe it's one that you know needs encouragement. Whatever the case might be, take a moment, and whether it's a text or an email or a phone call or a, a card, get a hold of someone and say, how can I encourage you? The Lord brought you to my mind. He loves you. Brothers and sisters, if you if you have not surrendered to Jesus, if he has not given you a new vision and a new purpose in life, let today be the day. Call on his name. He will not turn you away. Let's pray. Father, it's a joy that we get to proclaim and prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And we can we can coordinate other passages from your word that are true, that help us to see what he has come to do and that he has come to seek and to save the lost. He has come to give us life eternal when we believe on his name. Even, when while, even while we're still sinners, he has come to die in our place. And so I, be, I, I pray, Lord, that belief is what rises up when we hear these things. So in that way, Lord, that we might... Walk in peace, knowing that you have secured our eternity and we no longer have to fear death because you've conquered it. But I pray, Lord, that we would not fall into the trap of looking within ourselves for purpose in life and, and these things because it, not, it will not happen that way. No matter how many commercials or Facebook ads tell us, it will not come from looking within. It comes from looking outside of ourselves to the Savior, Jesus. And so, Lord, may we ask in this moment, as we sing this song of reflection, may we ask the question that I think you want us to ask, and is this, Lord, what should we do? What can we do, Lord, to be saved and then to follow you and be built up in your name? Lord, give us more of your spirit. Show us the truth in these things. In Jesus' name we pray.